Blog Talk Radio. Greetings. Thank you for joining me, Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode, Orange is the New Black, the privatization of the prison industrial complex. Please allow me first to state that I was not aware until recent that the Emmy Award winners for the comedy role in supporting actress went to an actress for the actual sitcom of Orange is the New Black. So this show was actually considered to be recorded today live prior to my learning of their quote-unquote win or the being recipients of the award, and this has nothing to do with that. Having said that, I am constrained to state that while that show is doing wonderful in terms of television ratings and the like, the reality for so many women and girls who are subject to the prison environments in the United States, there is nothing comical about it. And while I am aware that the Orange is the New Black is premised upon Piper's purported 15-month incarceration for participating in money laundering, which generally is the predicate offense of RICO law, which generally carries a mandatory prison term of 10 years for most people, she was fortunate to receive a 15-month imprisonment in a minimum security prison in Connecticut. And so while I am aware of that, it does not take away from the realities of individuals who have been incarcerated for mandatory minimums, and they will clearly tell you there is nothing comical about the incarceration of women and girls in America, many of whom patient and abuse as demonstrated by the recent accusations lodged against the prison system in New York, Rikers Island, as well as the history that transpired many years ago in the state of Georgia that became a televised program. So every single day in America, there are young women and girls that are victimized, sexually exploited, and abused while incarcerated by staffs of our prison systems, notwithstanding women who are victims of mental, emotional, psychological, and physical abuse during their incarceration, as well as those who are entering into the system and having that as the luggage, if you will, that they carry. So I just felt the need to put that out there because I don't necessarily know because I've never watched the program. I only read about her story what actually the program is about, but I constantly hear it being related to comical, a comical, a comedy, dramatics, et cetera, and I'm taken back by that because of the experiences that so many individuals have. Having said that, allow me to move forward with the purpose of the show today, which is to discuss the privatization of the prison industrial complex and why the orange is, in fact, the new black. Most people use the term black as a slang to say that it is new, it is hip, it is dated, uh, no longer it is updated, etc. For me, the in black represents economics and financing. For many of us in economics, you hear people use the term, this is in the red, meaning it's a negative, it's a loss, it's a debt. Well, in the black means the opposite. It means that it's a profit, it is an income, it is an earning. 
and so the orange is the new black for the purposes of the show means that orange, the prison system, incarcerated individuals, inmates of the privatization of the prison industrial complex and companies like GEO, NCC, uh, um, CAC, and CCA have reaped financial gains from privatizing prison systems in this country. And in doing so, the question begs, are we really given or do we give a dawn about treatment and rehabilitation programs? Are we more concerned with drawing a profit and making sure that beds are filled? And so while we in this country keep talking about criminal justice reform, the reality is we're not really interested in reform because to reform means to eliminate beds, and to eliminate beds means to eliminate the profit. And to eliminate the profit means to shut down privatizing. And to do that means to put people out of business. And we're not really trying to do that. Because the flip side of what we're really doing, truth be told, is going from privatizing prison systems, bed space, to privatizing probation services. So that by privatizing probation and the supervision of inmates, we now give private companies an opportunity to do what bed spaces were once doing, and we're allowing private people profit from inmates. So, again, we're not really doing what we say we're doing. So reading in between the lines, when you have private companies, like throughout Georgia and New York and California, New Jersey, Florida, that are privatizing probationary services and the supervision of inmates, you're not saying that we're trying to prevent people from being subject to the system, you're still trying to profit. And I'm not a fool. I do know that there are individuals who are committing criminal offenses. And as such, when they're doing it, they need to be subject to penal punishments. But the question is, are we given disciplinary or punitive? And I'm against punitive measures, right? And so if we're going to put together diversion programs, the goal always has to be to avoid entering into and or being subject to incarceration and you dismantle mass incarceration by considering those variables or alternatively, if you're going to use a diversion program, then it provides treatment and rehabilitation such as anger management, issues of dealing with violence, drug treatment, mental health services, completion of high school diplomas or GED programs where applicable, allowing for individuals to go into vocational and or college studies to attain an associate's degree for two to three years as opposed to sitting in a prison and do nothing. There are some offenses that require individuals to have to be detained and monitored and supervised. I get that. I understand it. But when we look at statistics that are available through the Justice Department Bureau of Statistics, and when we look at data on local levels, we know that the majority of individuals who are victims of the mass incarceration movement in America to the benefit of the privatization of the prison industrial complex for profit margins that those individuals are nonviolent offenders. 
7.2 million Americans are the subject of our judicial system through imprisonment, jail, probation, and or monitoring through parole. 7.2 million. We currently, if the numbers are correct, have an excess of an almost 2.1 million currently detained. Jail and prison environments. The privatization of the prison industrial complex will be back. Thank you for holding for this episode on Live with Sherry of The Orange is the New Black, the privatization of the prison industrial complex. Allow me for purposes of this segment to discuss the orange being the new black. Most prison systems throughout the United States, both federal and state, allow for their inmates to wear orange. And so each individual person who wears orange is human capital, and that human capital is a profit capital. It's a slave trade. The privatization of the prison industrial complex is not simply predicated or based upon bed space. Rather, in many jurisdictions around the country, inmates get up as early as 6 o'clock in the morning and they work on prison farms where they pick cotton, fruits, and vegetables, and then they're returned back to the facility. In many regards, these individuals are called upon to build facilities, office complexes, and other prison environments. In the state of Georgia on February 4th, 2013, in Georgia, the United, at the Supreme Court, 2014, excuse me, February 4th, 2014, in the Supreme Court of Georgia, there was a case involving the Department of Corrections. And I took a group of students so that they can learn about criminal justice and how our court systems work. And in visiting that, facil- that particular hearing, they were able to hear legal arguments pertaining to a young man who was sentenced to serve time in prison. He was part of a work release program, and his penis was decapitated, if you will, removed, taken off, injured, as a result of him being injured on a work release. That particular group that he was with was called upon to build a structure, a home, a residence for the warden. And it was purported during that particular legal argument that his penis was severed, severed during an injury that he sustained. And the question was how much money was that inmate entitled to and whether or not the state was responsible for compensating him and the legal argument before the court was as it pertained to attorney fees. And so as you could see, Part of the privatization of the prison industrial complex is not limited to paying private industry to man or manage bed space, but what we're doing with inmates during their incarceration. That includes but is not limited to these individuals being called upon to do everything from prescription eyeglasses, yes, prescription eyeglasses, to license plates, to 
machinery, produ- producing parts for machinery, to manufacturing of clothing and garments and what we would call sweatshops. And let me share this. A gentleman who was recently released from serving 15 years in prison received the check. His check was for $7 and change. Now, one may ask, how do you work for 15 years in prison and your check is $7.13 to be exact? And we know that purportedly some of the funds are used for concessions and commissary. 15 years of slave labor, your check is $7.13. Slave labor, using inmates in America to do everything from landscaping to man in our highways, to prescription eyeglasses, to license plates, to picking cotton, fruits, and vegetables. So when we talk about immigration reform and it is now time to send the Mexicans back, it's a two-part conversation, one being that America, Arizona, New Mexico, California, and Texas is their land. The next being, why now? So if the interest is truly on addressing immigration reform, the real issue or the real conversation goes back to the privatization of the prison industrial complex. We're not interested in sending Mexicans back to deport them for any alleged or purported wrongdoings. We just know that if we do that, we have to fill the void. And in filling that void, we now have to give to black and white Americans alike, as well as the Latino community, the opportunity to work in industry that once was dominated by those groups, construction, agriculture, hospitality industry, and hotel and the like, somebody has to be willing to work that. So who is going to take those jobs? The individuals that were incarcerated will best be used to serve that purpose. And so there are many who, when they hear presidential candidate, Republican candidate Donald Trump speak about what they're going to do with immigration and Mexicans, we know the Southerners, the seven Southern states, are not going to be interested in voting for him because they've had to rely on that base, that population. But at some point, the conversation will go beyond the conversation and mere dialogue to action. And so plans are already in motion for what would be done to fill those voids. And that is one of the only reasons why we're concerned about immigration reform, because it ties into criminal justice reform and who replaces that segment of slave labor. Inmates will, those who are being released and prepared for reentry, those who have served mandatory minimums 10, 20, and 30 years, those who, unlike Piper, Really, a lot of women, particularly African-American and Latino women, who have been victims of Rockefeller laws and mandatory minimums, who went in prison in the late 80s, who will be released, where do they go? What do they do? How do we address issues of housing, health, mental health, employment, and education? What employment opportunities are readily available to those women who went in as young as 19 years of age? who are coming home at 41 and 45 years of age, who may live to see 60 and 70. 
what will they be called upon to do the next 30 years? And it is industries like hospitality that we will send many of them. To the farms, we will send many of slave labor. And so the conversation for the prison industrial complex ties into immigration reform, as does criminal justice reform. It is a multi-billion dollar industry. And there are many new millionaires created every single year in this country as a result of orange being the new black. Not being hip in that sense, but being profitable human capital, where since 1968 to the present, slave codes have become criminal code, where the activities of the minority community and second-class populations become the law that is legislated as illegal acts. And things that people generally did now become a crime. That could best be analyzed by looking at the recent Supreme Court decision on three strikes legislation that no one actually knew what we now would define as a violent offense to fit into or to allow for three strikes administration to take effect as it does in California and many other jurisdictions around the country. We created new laws that enabled individuals who would not have otherwise been subject to three strikes legislation to now be subject to it and ultimately be victimized by it. And it is so unfortunate that it took our high court almost 20 years later to say that this is unconstitutional. But I say with all due respect, what does that mean? There are so many states like Georgia and many others that know that laws are unconstitutional, and yet they still are subjecting individuals to them. Georgia has OCGA 174 and 40, which we know is unconstitutional, that is void for vagueness as it pertains to privatizing or giving private citizens the right to initiate criminal proceedings. We have individuals who are subject to child abandonment warrants where they're guilty until proven innocent after taking DNA tests, but only after they've been subject to arrest and detention and deprived of core liberties under the U.S. Constitution. We know that the United States Supreme Court has already spoken on those matters in two separate cases, Timmerman, Linder R.S. versus Richard D. Citations omitted. Look it up. We'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode, Orange is the New Black, the privatization of the prison industrial complex. There's a lot of literature out there on this subject matter. There's a a book on the Jim Crow, the mass incarceration. You have another book by Angela Y. Davis in which the uh, former icon, if you will, of the 1960s and 70s revolutionary movement, as people like to label her, uh, has written a book on the privatization of the prison industrial complex, as have a host of other scholars, uh, white and black alike, male and female alike, who are really called upon to examine what we are doing and what we've done in this country 
with the underclass and underserved or second-class citizens by using prison and mass incarceration as a means to deter and to punish when we know aforehand, when we're writing and drafting legislation that subjecting individuals to detention and punitive measures is not going to change pattern, practice, or behavior. We know that. The new trend, however, has been the incarceration of women. And in doing so, I have made this statement over and over again. I just believe that it becomes a threat to national security when we have a disappearance of women and women and girls. Women and girls bear forth the fruit. We are the producers of the next generation. And when you eliminate us, you are actually engaging in population control of specific groups. A part of the privatization of the prison industrial complex came through the quote-unquote war on drugs. And what the war on drugs really did was place Latinos and African Americans and poor whites and made them prisoners of war, if you will, and that the war on drugs really became a war against addiction and addicts. And we did nothing really to change how drugs affect the American people. Just as quick as we shut down one crack house, one meth house, or clinics, if you will, there's another one that's opened right next door. So we're not really doing anything, and we haven't done anything since Nixon's and Congress enacted the drug wars in 1971. We're no further along in combating drugs in America. I think Shirley Chisholm said a quote, something along the lines that cocaine and heroin addicts are no different than television addicts and that, or alcohol addiction, and that there is really no war on drugs in America. It's a war against people and a certain population in America. And we see that every single day as we look at what the war on drugs has done to communities, what it has done to families, more importantly, what it's even doing to America. The matter is, if in 1971 the ultimate goal was to target blacks and Latinos, uh, people don't know that under the Harrison Act that cocaine was one before the Harrison Act that co- cocaine was legal in America, uh, and so that opium, cocaine, and marijuana targeted three groups: the Chinese, the blacks, and the Mexicans. I mean, that's really what it was about, and the end result of that has been mass incarceration, destruction of communities and families in America. So who are our future military leaders? Who are our future doctors, lawyers, and politicians? Those groups collectively are the majority of Americans, Asian, Black, and Latinos. They represent the majority. So if you've suffered all of them to incarceration, do you look for the apartheid mentality that the minority will still rule the majority? Is that the direction that we were going? Is that the direction that we were trying to take and we now realize it's not working? How do you prepare those three segments of society, those populists, to countries like India and China and Latin America? How do you prepare them to compete in a global society if you're suffering them to incarceration and the ill effects of incarceration? Because what the privatization of the prison industrial complex did was say, we have a profit sharing industry here and it is to their advantage to keep people locked up and you have to in order for people to generate income so in doing that 
we create laws that allow for individuals to have criminal behavior. For example, in 2000, the federal government made clear through the Human Trafficking Act and sex trafficking that it was inappropriate, and I'm saying that in layman's terms, that it was inappropriate to incarcerate juveniles or anyone under the age of 18 for prostitution, pretty much so because these were individuals who were victims. It would take eight years before New York realized that, 10 years through House Bill 244, before Georgia realized that. So in the course of 15 years, how many young women had been the subject of prostitution laws? How many young women and women have been subject to incarceration, arrest, detention, and conviction of prostitution? How many of them now have criminal records? So for you to come back now and say, oh, we recognize there's a problem? So what do you do? You grandfather those young women? Do you now allow for them to have their records erased, eradicated, restricted, but they still have to report that they was arrested? But it took you 15 years to catch on to what the feds were doing? Really? For you to realize that these young women were victims and some boys were victims? The generation that's been lost. Let's go a step further. In a state like Georgia, who was administering standardized exams for graduation, and now the state finally says, well, we're no longer going to administer those exams, but we're going to allow for individuals who've been the subject to those exams and failed them, who were not able to get the diplomas as a result, to now apply for the diplomas. So for the last 20 years, if you needed to pass the high school graduation exam to receive your diploma, you now can get it? How many individuals were unable to attain employment, go to college, or act in furtherance of their education because they failed the exam and were not able to get their diploma? So do you understand what I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen? It's all like it's nonsense. It's propaganda. It's a lie. There's no reform. It's an illusion. Because you look what you've done for 20 years, and now you tell that population, many of whom are dead, died in the war on drugs, in the streets, or in prison for committing crimes because they couldn't get employment. Now you tell them to come back and get their diplomas? To do what with their diplomas? To do what? To go where? These are now somebody's mother and father. They've been caught in a dead-end job because they couldn't get their diploma, because they couldn't put on an application that they had graduated from school. And 20 years later, you say, hey, come back and get your diploma. No, they're all part of the privatization of the prison industrial complex now. They're human capital where you're made a profit from these people and the poor choices that they made for 20 years, 15 years, while young women who have been forced into a life of sex labor, now we're saying that it's a crime and we're going to decriminalize your behavior. Part of a multi-billion dollar industry, that's not going to change because you're giving up bed space because you've privatized probation now. And these companies are going to do any and everything they can 
to keep these young men and women on paper, as we say. Continue in allowing them to pay the $32 per month fee. And when they can't pay it, they'll be revoked. So as the old adage, you come to Georgia on vacation, you leave on probation, and they bring you back on revocation. Thank you for joining me on Blog Talk Radio as we discuss the privatization of the prison industrial complex. It is no laughing matter. And those young women will never get an award or an Emmy for the roles that they have to pay every single day for being raped, sodomized, and abused by staffers and victimized mentally, emotionally, and psychologically at the expense of taxpayers. <laughs> 